Hail and well met, traveler. Welcome to Threat Dice, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, storytelling, and the vagaries of the dice. I'm your host, Kylan Wig... I, I mean, Andy Fling. You know, I should probably explain why I'm not Kylan Wigan. Hey all, I'm Andy, one of the other one-thirds of Tumble Die Games. Kylan is taking November off from the podcast, so I'll be taking over for a few episodes. This is my first crack at it, so bear with me as I discover things like how cruddy my mic really is, and maybe taking over a podcast during the height of my allergy season is not great timing. Anyway, back to the show. I am one-third of the team at TumbleDye Games, a young company developing a new hybrid storytelling RPG called Trove. We believe in the power of story, and the goal of Trove is to simulate the arc and tension of a three-act story within the framework of a tabletop RPG. You can find out more at www.tumbledie.com, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at TumbleDie, or Instagram. Faithful listeners, this episode I will be running an interview on the topic of homebrewing. From creating your own worlds in which to play your favorite RPG, to designing races and classes within the frame of a rule set. Though we stray once or twice from the topic, the RPG homebrew is our focus today. And my guest is, let me make sure I get his name right, Kylan Wiggin. Okay, so he's not taking a complete break from Threat Dice. Kylan was kind enough to join me for my maiden voyage before his break begins proper. Let's take a listen. How's it going, Kylan? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Andy. Well, it's good to have you here. It is very strange to be in the interview chair on <laughs> on this podcast. Well, it's very strange on my side, too. It's just strange all around. <laughs> but I'm excited to do it, and I hope my, my allergy season voice doesn't turn anyone off. <laughs> So yeah, let's talk homebrew. It's uh it seems to be a, a a popular thing amongst the RPG podcasts that I listen to and the the people I play with, um, including you. I'm curious, uh, how would you define homebrew? Okay, so first, hang on, we're not here to talk about chaotic neutral, the uh, the 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 beer that I made last year. That's not why. Oh, okay, sorry, wrong. No. I'm going to have to throw away all my notes now. Damn it. Um, <laughs> we'll save that for a follow-up uh, episode. Okay. Um, so <laughs> how would I define homebrewing? Well, I think, at least for me, the the RPG kind of homebrewing, and honestly, the beer too, although I don't do it that much. I'm mostly joking here, folks, um, is is more of a calling than anything else. I think that anyone can do it. But there's something about it that catches some people like a net. Once you start doing it, for some people, it's really hard to stop doing it. And sometimes it can start small. Like if you're running an official published scenario and your players go off the beaten track, you don't want to stop them and make the sinful transgression of railroading them, right? No one wants to do that. No one wants to end up on RPG horror stories because you, you know, dared to express that you might have an idea as a DM. <laughs> you follow the players and you cook something up and then you're freewheeling. And for some people it works and it starts to hook them. Some people don't make it that far. 
and it it doesn't work for them, right? And they don't make it that far. Yeah. But some people they get a taste of that, and then they start to wonder what else they can do, and it builds from there. And scenarios turn into worlds and into mechanics, and sometimes farther than that. And well, and then you've got people like me, because I was raised by a DM who did nothing but invent his own custom mechanics when I was growing up, and. <laughs> every game I played was in his own custom world. I never, I never played a published scenario until I was well into my teens. And I, I don't know, I, I might have run a printed module twice. I, I tried Horde of the Dragon Queen once, and that was a disaster. Yeah. It was a disaster. And I, I might have done one or two more, but it doesn't happen very often. But that's because every time I try, <laughs> I'm always disappointed by them especially the old ones. Uh, so I've played a bunch of like the old ones and it, it just turns out that my personal taste doesn't run to the, uh, the scenarios where everyone wrote them on acid or <laughs> whatever it was that they did in those early days right. of D D. If, if anyone listening has ever played castle Amber, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and maybe that's for you and maybe it isn't. And for me, it just isn't. So I, I just make up my own stuff. I'm a world builder and that led me wanting to customize my games. And now here we are and we're making a game of our own. So that's pretty much that. Do you feel like there is a, a difference between homebrew and house rules? Or do you feel like one always goes with the other? I think house rules are the gateway to homebrew, okay. right? Because when, when you start house ruling, you have to be very careful. Because if you're house ruling something, you're changing a game that, well, nowadays, a game that has been very thoroughly tested, right? So you got to be really careful with modern games, house ruling. Now, house ruling was all the rage back in the old days when there weren't that many rules and you had to come up with a, you know, a regular answer to a common question. Hmm. But now I feel like house rules, as dangerous as they are, are sort of the key to unlocking homebrew. Okay. If you come up with a house rule that really works, you're like, oh, what else could we change? Right. Exactly. <laughs> if if we're this good at it, how far can we go? Right. And now somebody might make a house rule that's just awful, and that might be the, the as far as it goes, right? Um, yeah. And that's part of why house ruling is so dangerous, because especially if you're, you know, a modern player playing D&D 5e, right? That game is pretty it's pretty tight. It doesn't have a lot of room for, for messing with things. And when you do, you, it can come off pretty bad because you're generally trying to stop something that is an expectation. Be careful with your house rules, guys, is what I'm trying to say. So you'd say that um, homebrew is more about more often about setting than it is about fiddling with the rules. More often, yes. Yeah. I, I think I think that building your own worlds is probably the place that most homebrewers start. Yeah. You know, for me, none of I I have never found a joy in usurping someone else's story. And that's what it always feels like to me when I'm playing in the Forgotten Realms or, you know, trying to insert my own characters into Dragonlance. It always feels like I'm interfering in what they're doing, even though they don't care what I'm doing, right? They never met me. They never will. Although it'd be nice to meet Margaret Weiss someday. Uh, <laughs> but even so, I have this aversion to interfering in someone else's story. I just don't like doing it. 
So for me, I would rather cook up the, the baseline of a world that has no preconceptions so that my players can do whatever they want to it and not feel like they have to follow the story that already exists, right? Because if you start in Dragonlance, you have to expect the War of the Lands, right? You, you, there, there's this whole history happening. If you're not playing the main characters, if you're in the Forgotten Realms and you're not playing Drist and his buddies, what are you doing exactly? <laughs> so, and that's the problem I have. I would rather my players be those characters in a world of my own creation than living in their shadow. What, what was your, when did you take your first crack at, uh, at homebrewing? Oh, well, um, I started DMing when I was about 12, so it must have been around there. At that point in my life, our fam- my family didn't really have the money to be buying a lot of stuff. And I had a pile of books because my parents were D&D players. But because my DM was a homebrewer, there really wasn't that much in the way of modules in it. So I just started sort of making things up for the kids I was playing with. And as early as that, I, I, I remember, or maybe I don't remember exactly, but thinking back on it now, I can see that I was trying to do then what I am just barely beginning to understand now. Trying to, to get my, my players to be the heroes that I was reading about in these other, these other books, these other settings, right? Trying to get them to, right. to fill that role. And I'm certain that because I was 12, it was railroading them mercilessly <laughs> um, because there is really only so much you can do when you are 12. I don't remember. I don't remember the first game I ran. I think my earliest D and D memory is an argument about a fireball in a dungeon hallway, which is pretty cliche, honestly, <laughs> but I don't think I could put a date or even a group of players attached to that. I can't even like picture or hear who it was I was talking to. So, so homebrew was pretty much, that's what the game was from the beginning for you. Absolutely. Probably the first time you heard someone talk about a module, you're like, what's that? I don't get it. Yeah. Kind of right. Like I, I think I knew that they existed as a, as a concept, but, I'm pretty sure even before I started DMing, I was working on my own custom fantasy kingdom. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it was an island shaped like England at first because I was like (laughs) 10 and I didn't know any better. And it actually lasted for quite a while and got more complicated. And there's a whole very dramatic story there that involves a bunch of characters of my own creation that is very juvenile and very melodramatic that I never wrote down because I could never get it to sound anywhere as good as it feels in my head. But it got to the point where uh, my best friend in high school actually has a whole clan of characters of his that were designed by him and his uncle and his D&D playing family that live in my custom world. Oh, wow. They were granted a fiefdom in this in this place. And Nicholas, if you ever hear this episode, I have not forgotten about the Kirstar clan's fiefdom. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny you mentioned um, Map of England because my first memory of of discovering Dungeons and Dragons was I was walking to school. I don't know what grade it was, but um, I was walking to school past the um, the Academy bookstore and in their big window, they had a display of it was a map of England, I believe. It was this huge, well-illustrated map of England. Mm-hmm. 
And it was in combination with all the D&D books down below it. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I was late to school because I just stood there studying this map <laughs> and looking at these books with the, you know, the monster manual with that split section illustration yep. of the creatures underground and on top. And I was just drooling over it. And I'm pretty sure the school called my mother that day because I was late. <laughs> just standing there staring at it. I didn't know what it was. And, and my imagination was going crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I believe there are also like some of the early modules there as well. So I, my earliest uh, memories and experiences of, of role-playing um, AKA D and D was uh, there was, there were always modules and that's where I started. But I quickly reached your conclusion. Right. I feel like I'm trying to shoehorn our imaginations into this, into someone else's structure. And I yeah, just, it quickly lost its appeal. And so homebrewing became the only way to do it, really. I always found that it's sort of, if I do it myself, my imagination feels unbound and anything can happen. And if I'm trying to run a module, even though, I can spin from scratch, no problem. If I'm running a module, I feel like my imagination suddenly has chains and blinders on. Yeah. And if something unexpected happens, my fiction instincts don't kick in. And instead, I end up leafing through the module, trying to find out what's supposed to happen. I, I would imagine that when, you know, especially for those early ones, when they were written by, you know, whoever, they were supposed to be kind of inspirational and, and a baseline to start with, right? Not necessarily provide answers to all the questions, which is a discussion for another time. But even then with those old ones, I never felt like they were a baseline. It always felt like these are the things that are supposed to happen. And that's always been difficult for me. Like it's, it's like being bound because I feel like it's someone else's story, right? And so if I'm not telling their yeah. story, then I might as well be telling mine. <laughs> it's kind of a way for the DM as well as the players to be railroaded. Yeah. All of us are railroaded when we use a module, kind of. Because there's a, there's a limited number of things that can happen. And when you start going off the module and allow anything to happen, well, then you're just... You're homebrewing. Right. You're, you're homebrewing already. So why didn't you start there? Right. 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 And, you know, the, and that's not to say that there aren't some brilliant modules out there that allow for a lot of, you know, what's that lizard people one? Oh, against the cult of the reptile god. I've read it. I haven't run it, but I've read it and I like it. The fifth edition Curse of Strahd is actually pretty cool. Yeah. In a lot of ways. It has a very specific feeling and requires a very specific group of players. But I think that if you do it and pull it off, it has a lot of good stuff in it. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you like to include your players in the world building of a homebrew uh, because you build it initially in a kind of a sparse manner where you get the, uh, the parts of the world that are needed to begin the story. Uh, but it, it sounds like you like to allow the players to have kind of a hand in the world building of your homebrew. Would that be accurate? Yes. So when I was young and foolish, <laughs> I thought that the correct way to build a game world was to emulate one Mr. Tolkien. Yes. 
and and spin a start at the very beginning of the dawn of time and <laughs> you know create the universe from scratch um i have since realized that that is a terrible idea um that only that only very specific people should pursue a path like that because it's not necessary and also your players are just going to focus on the exact thing that you decided not to write about exactly right like they they do not care what happened in your world three thousand years ago i used to think it was interesting i guess i just don't have the time to think that hard about things anymore so yeah i came to a point where i realized that the players were the more important part than than some sort of imagined history that didn't really matter so my favorite method is to do exactly what you described. Pick a few important points of interest in a small area and then figure out a hook for them and set them loose. And hopefully my hooks are good enough that they'll follow them. But I try, I, I have I have come to believe very firmly, as listeners of our podcast may know, in the concept of player agency. I like it when the players feel as though they understand their surroundings well enough to make their own choices, mm. whether those are the ones that I planned for or not. But if I have described a, a world that they understand it enough to make choices, that is good. And I have made the other mistake of giving exactly zero direction and and building building a sandbox that has nothing interesting about it, which causes the opposite problem where they do nothing because they have no idea what they can do. So my my split the difference has become here is a place in which you have no requirements these are some things that you could choose to do here are the top four what would you like to pursue and that so far has been a winning model i feel like my approach has definitely evolved to that point as well homebrew definitely used to be about the hours spent before the game even started before session zero I should have just been trying to write a novel instead of preparing for a, a game of D&D. Exactly. I feel it's definitely evolved to get the general idea, include the players, have that be a, a good portion of session zero where the players have a chance to contribute oh, with the, sure. the backstory of their, their characters that they create. Well, you get buy-in automatically right if you bring them a world they don't necessarily know or care anything about it if they help create the world all of a sudden you have player investment from moment one exactly which is a good thing so um we've kind of covered your your history in homebrewing mm -hmm. and um, how you got to it and your technique what's a, a specific homebrew that you've created that you're 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 pretty happy and proud of. Sure. Um, so I think worlds is the like the easy answer. Um, I, I've created so many fictional fantasy worlds that I cannot keep track of them anymore. Um, <laughs> and and to that point, I have actually written some novels along the way under a pen name. So yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> that featured their very own fantasy worlds. So settings, I almost do instinctively at this point like i just i can't help myself i create new fantasy worlds um and science fiction worlds sometimes to my players befuddlement i've been hacking DD rules about as long as i can remember i think my first big homebrew thing when i was a teenager my childhood dm and i we set out to make our very own system 
that was my first like system design attempt. Oh. Um, and it, it unfortunately never made it out of the early stages, but we were building a universal game system that we successfully used to play a John Carter of Mars style scenario and Star Trek. So wow. the fact that we did both and people had a good time, I think was promising. Amusingly, that custom system is the very first RPG that my wife ever played. Oh, yeah. So her very first game is one that doesn't exist, which I find very funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and has probably skewed her view of RPGs right from the beginning. It certainly has. Yes, because it was it was a skill based character focused game. And so trying to retro play D&D now for her, she always feels boxed in because she has to pick from the, you know, the options available. Since then, I have uh, hacked together a couple of uh, classes and subclasses. I wrote an entire psionic version of the Warlock for D&D 5. I played one to about level 8, I think, in someone else's game, because I got invited to a game, and I was like, can I do this? And he said, sure. So it actually went pretty well. Like The character was effective, and it felt like a scion, so that was cool. I've also written a Pathfinder first edition ranger archetype that is a witcher, but I haven't had time to try it yet. I'm pretty sure it would work, but but my goal when I create something is flavor. Like a lot of people, when they homebrew something, right, they're trying to they're trying to max out their power level and then slide it by their GM so they can dominate the game. Right. I am the GM. I don't care. I want to evoke the flavor of something which is why my Witcher archetype is a ranger for for the Pathfinder geeks out there. It's why it's a ranger and not a slayer. The slayer is objectively a better class from a power standpoint, but didn't have as many opportunities for me to swap in the alchemy and the hunting and all the things that make a Witcher feel like a Witcher. So that is always my goal. I want it to feel right. And if I can't find that, somewhere in the existing system which is actually sort of striking when it comes to pathfinder i can't believe that there is not already a witcher archetype out there i wanted to make sure that if i homebrewed something it would feel right even if it is underpowered it can be a lot of fun especially with the more complex games you know 5e is i think i think our listeners know that it is not really my favorite game but what it does have is a fair amount of flexibility Hmm. to do that kind of stuff, right? If what you want isn't there, it's not that hard to find a structure that is similar or that you could use as a skeleton and sort of match the progression of and make sure that you're falling within the balance of the game so you're not breaking the game, but giving yourself the right flavor, right? Right. I I, I started that Scion as a Warlock subtype, you know, change the primary stat from charisma to intelligence but then i realized pretty quickly that what i needed was the f- the structure of a warlock but all of the abilities like you couldn't use the warlock abilities their their meta spells and whatnot on a scion because they are not flavored correctly and they don't and they do things that don't make sense from a psionic perspective so you can't you can't do it as a subclass right so i and then and the other problem was when you're looking at psionics, you've got different kinds. You've got a psychokineticist and a telepath. Those are subclasses of 
a subclass. So what I had to do, I had to back up a level, make it a full-fledged class instead so that I could have the subtypes and write my own abilities to make sure that it did what it was supposed to do. It was a lot of work in the end, but it was fun work. Definitely. Especially when you're, when you're trying to wrap your head around the math of it and keeping right. things balanced. That's, that's got to be difficult. Yeah. And fortunately, I was able to steal about 80% of it from the Warlock, maybe even 85%, and just like change the wording on stuff. But when I got to the points where it was more customized, yeah, it was definitely tricky. And then you have a game like Pathfinder where it seems like homebrewing is is mostly pointless because anything you could possibly imagine there's there's a combination of class and subclass and feats and whatever that you could create just about yeah like i was really surprised when i went looking i went googling you know like is there a pathfinder witcher archetype and people are like well you can kind of combine these three things to do it and you can you know do it this way and i i kept thinking how has nobody done this yet (laughs) 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 yeah instead of like trying to hack it together i was like no 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 a witcher is a ranger but with alchemy instead of magic and maybe some some special stuff about their their hunting tracking abilities but that's really where the flavor of it is it's about the alchemical extracts that that change the witcher you know making making potions and putting them together in the right combination for the specific monster that you're hunting down. Mm. And that was not something I could find anywhere in these combinations because they're all too generic. That kind of harkens back to one of our earlier episodes where we talked about what class Gandalf would actually be or Conan. Right, right. Robin Hood and and where most people would think Witcher would be one thing. You wanted to get the flavor right, so you, you decided that be a ranger exactly and you know fifth edition folks have it easy because matt mercer's got you covered right he released that (laughs) he released that blood hunter class pretty early and that does the trick i think for most folks so i was really i was genuinely surprised when pathfinder didn't have one so if anybody's curious i don't know i'll put it up on the website or something so you mentioned uh you you created a scion or you homebrewed a scion and uh tell me more about that i'm I, I have vague memories of psionics all the way back to the beginning of D and D and and the the little fake leather bound <laughs> second edition book. Um, so I want to hear about your scion. Okay, so wizards at one point in the five E life cycle released a unearthed arcana class called the Mystic, which was like their sort of half assed attempt at introducing psionics into fifth edition. Mm-hmm. And I think it was mostly based on the the old mystic from OD&D because um, there was actually a mystic class in, in the in the expert rules for original D&D, believe it or not. So ever since first edition AD&D, I, I fell in love with those five pages of rules in the back of the player's handbook that talk about psionics. I don't even know how they made it in there. I have from the very beginning sort of loathed the Vancean magic system. I don't like spell slots. I think they're silly. The the whole I, I have this like philosophical objection to the whole concept. Um, but those five pages <laughs> in the back of the player's handbook gave you a separate magic system powered entirely by the character's force of will that only a tiny percentage of characters could even have if your D, if your DM allowed it. 
right? First, you had to get the okay, and then you had to roll a percentage die, and you had to get like an ought one or something. And it's based on force of will and power, and it's dangerous and wild and crazy things can happen when you try to use it. That that's my kind of magic system, right? Mm. The the rote spells that just fire off and disappear from your mind when you say the magic words, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I when I was playing 5e to start with, and I realized that the mystic was not what I wanted it to do, I looked and realized that kind of the key, the, the one thing that every psionic can do is psionic blast. Oh, wait, that's that's like their main attack. And I thought, well, that's pretty similar to the Warlock's Eldritch Blast hmm. in a lot of ways. Conceptually speaking, it's very similar. So I thought, okay. And they've got that sort of raw power and a limited amount of active spells, but they've got that whole sub-list. Warlock's one of my favorite 5e classes. But because of the Eldritch Invocations that let you modify your Warlock and customize it piece by piece, I like that. So, and then, like I mentioned, it couldn't just be a warlock subclass because it had its own subclasses. So I wrote it up as a fully custom class and it played mostly like a warlock with some reflavor and a few key changes. Overall, I'd say it was a qualified success. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a 100% a winner, but it worked. It didn't overshadow the party and it let me play a tiny psychic forest gnome for seven levels and that was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a blast. It, it was a psionic blast. In fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I swear that we didn't rehearse that. I swear. Nope. To... You know, just, this is kind of off topic, but it, it's making me realize something about psionics and why I was so, one of the reasons I was so interested in dark sun was because of how restricted psionics was in the rules of the game mm -hmm. and and then this this setting came out where everyone yeah had at least a little psionics right and i was like ooh, what a great idea yeah you don't have to roll a one on a d100 anymore right um and and it's it's because of that restriction that that uh the rarity they they placed around the psionic ability and see my inclination is that if you want to, it, like, this would never work in gameplay. But my inclination is, if you want to play a wizard, you better roll a 1%. That's, oh, that's a great Because that's, yeah. that's how I feel about magic, is that it should be impossibly rare. But, right. you know, now literally every, every class has a magic option. And that is not, it's not my favorite. I I think I think magic should be wild and untamed and rare, which is why those psionics rules speak to me so heavily. Well, Khan, thanks for spending some time with me. You're uh, you're always welcome back on Threat Dice. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I'll I'll look forward to my next appearance in December. <laughs> I'll see if I can fit you in uh, to the schedule of the podcast that you created. Fantastic, fantastic, and and I just like to say for you and for our listeners, I appreciate you uh, taking this on for the month, and I hope everybody enjoys all your episodes. I know I will be listening to them. Oh, thank you, thank you. I hope so too. I'm excited to do it. Thanks so much for joining me today. Before we go, one quick thing. If you're enjoying Threat Dice, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, Podchaser, 
or tweet us at TumbleDive. I'll read any reviews into the announcements on the next session. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may the road ever rise to meet you. Threat Dice is a production of TumbleDie Games, LLC. Our intro music is What Lies Beyond, and the outro music is Storm, all by Vince Vemt. Check out his amazing work at youtube.com slash Vince Vemt, V-I-N-D-S-V-E-P-T. Additional music by Audrey Sitkov and Andy Ray. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Andy Fling. A beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. You can find Threat Dice on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.